Jesus is uh, the person that he is and because he performs the miracles that he does, the question that has been present throughout his entire ministry keeps coming up, and that is, is this Jesus the, the Messiah? Is he the one? Is he the one that we've been waiting for? And, and the question came up repeatedly over those three years of ministry, and most of the time, he gave sort of cryptic answers, sometimes he even seems kind of evasive. And he tells people, you know, uh, who, who sort of figure it out, keep it to yourself. But this event is different. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is a clear prophetic declaration. Uh, the Gospels make it very clear to us that this is the fulfillment of a prophecy of Zechariah, that when this Messiah comes, when the king comes, the one that you're waiting for, he's going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. And so these things happen, these things are orchestrated in order to fulfill that particular prophecy. This is Jesus saying, yeah, I am in fact that guy. Here comes your king. The promise of all these generations is being fulfilled in this moment. But at the same time, there is something definitely wrong with the picture. Because the great kings of old were very different kinds of kings. And so here comes this king, if you will, riding on the colt of a donkey. He's not riding a steed of, of battle like a, like a victorious warrior. He doesn't have the, uh, the enemy king uh, walking behind him to show his dominance. In fact, the world has never seen another king like this one. He doesn't look or act the part. Maybe they're thinking, well, maybe instead of a king like David, he'll be more of a de deliverer like Moses. After all, the Messiah is supposed to look like Moses, right? He's going to be a prophet after Moses' kind. And Moses, when he comes to deliver the people uh, from Egypt, is coming from out of the wilderness where he'd been a shepherd. And so he didn't have a kingly appearance either. Maybe he's going to be like him. Maybe he's going to maybe he's going to bring down some plagues on the Roman Empire, and that'll be how it all comes to pass. Well, for once, the people get it right about Jesus. If it's only for a moment, they get it right. They recognize that he's the king. They recognize that prophecy is being fulfilled. But they're wrong about everything that comes next. So they remember the prophecy from Zechariah, Zechariah 9, 9, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Anyone who is familiar with that prophecy would have looked at the events of that day and said, something is happening. Something is taking place. But how many of them would have also remembered Isaiah 53, 7? He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Did anyone notice that Jesus, making his triumphal entry, is also entering the city the same day 
that the Passover lambs are being led into the city and up to the Temple Mount. Did anyone notice? You know, as the tradition of Passover, that the Passover lamb would be brought into your household four days before the Passover. That started with the very first Passover in Egypt. Bring this lamb, and this lamb lives with your family for four days. Sort of a fantasy of my daughter about her goats, but uh, bring these lambs into the household. Share your space. Why did you do that? Well, to evaluate them, make sure that they're perfect, make sure that they're without blemish. When does Jesus enter into Jerusalem? But four days before Passover to be seen, to be evaluated, to be known for his perfect nature. In the imagination of men, what cannot possibly happen if Jesus is the Messiah is precisely what will happen now. Because a victorious king cannot surrender, cannot suffer defeat. Jesus gives warnings to his disciples about exactly what's going to happen when they go into Jerusalem. And despite these repeated warnings, they can't quite process it. They can't quite fathom what Jesus is about to do. They don't get it. I don't know what they thought. Maybe they thought it was another parable he was telling. Maybe he's using one of those metaphors that we don't understand. What they couldn't imagine is that if Jesus really is the Messiah, that he's going to go and be arrested and put to death. Because that doesn't, fit the, that doesn't fit the profile. That doesn't work. And this explains to us maybe why they lose hope so quickly when these events take place. That they go from being elated, seeing these people responding to Jesus the way that they do, and maybe they're thinking, maybe this is it. We were so worried that Jesus was going to be going to be struck down if he entered Jerusalem, but look at all these, look at all the support that we have. Look how popular Jesus has become. Maybe this is the time when he just ascends to power and everything starts to change. And just a few days later, they're completely devastated and without hope. Why? Because disgrace and death and defeat in the human imagination means that Jesus couldn't be the Messiah. They'd have, they have to have been mistaken. For Jesus, however, the triumph is in the sacrifice. This is all part of the master plan. These are things that have to take place. This is the fulfillment of prophecy and the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption and atonement. And to understand that, we have to understand something about this whole business of sacrifice. Now, here's kind of an interesting thing about sacrifice that maybe might not have thought about before. This business of animal sacrifice extends back to the very beginning. The very beginning. Remember when Cain kills his brother Abel, what is that a dispute over? It's a dispute over sacrifices. Well, there's no law. The law hasn't been given and won't be given for a long, long time. The sacrifice is already a part of it. It's all, as a matter of fact, sacrifice is a part of nearly every human civilization it's history, in its history. 
prophetic significance of sacrifice comes to us centuries before Mount Sinai, centuries before the law is given, centuries before any of this is written down, and it comes to us in the story of Abraham and Isaac. Now, you remember Abraham has been promised that from him, this, this great nation, God's going to make a great nation of him, and through his descendants, he's going to bless the entire earth. And he's told them quite clearly that Isaac is the guy. Isaac is the son of promise. Everything's going to happen through Isaac. All your descendants are going to come through, through him. We know this very clearly because, uh, because Abraham tries to take matters into his own hands and, and, and has this kind of an illegitimate son in order to maybe uh, uh, help God out. And God says, thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to bless Ishmael because he's, he is your son, but he is not the child of promise. Isaac is the child of promise. Abraham knows this well. And so it must have been startling and confusing in Genesis 22. It says, sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love. I'll make sure he gets the right one. Isaac, in case you hadn't figured it out. And go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. Now, I have to say, um, animal sacrifice, even though it's, it's so common in human history, animal sacrifice is a jarring concept for us. It's difficult. Uh, it's difficult to understand why people would even think in terms of animal sacrifice being a good way to deal with any of your problems. Now, I have raised livestock to, from beginning to end, mostly small livestock. We've, you know, we've not done anything big, but we've raised livestock all the way to the point of butchering it and processing it, and we've done that on our own at times just because I thought it was important for my kids to see this whole process. You know, a lot of you who are, are still involved in farming and ranching understand that people today don't have a clear sense of where their food comes from. I think it's an important lesson for us to, to learn that, to see that, and to respect it. But that doesn't mean that it's a pleasant process. It's difficult. It's difficult. The idea of sacrificing animals on a regular basis to, you know, deal with my sins and stuff like that, kind of weird, right? This is really outside the scope for us. This is, this is not how we think. This is not how we process things. At best, maybe we can understand that this business of animal sacrifice imports upon our sin, the significance, it says to us that this is a life and death matter, that blood has to be shed in order to deal with this problem. That's a good lesson, but that's not quite enough. 
But all of that business, all of my discomfort, all of my uh, angst about this business of animal sacrifice pales in the comparison with my discomfort around this story. What on earth is happening here? God promises Abraham that he's going to make a nation of him, that he's going to bless him, that he's going to bless him through his son Isaac, and then he shows up one morning and says, I want you to take your son Isaac and sacrifice him. And just in case you're thinking, Abraham, that this is a metaphor, I want you to sacrifice him as a burnt offering. I want you to take his life and then allow him to be consumed in flames. This is uh, not a picture of God that I'm very comfortable with. In fairness, centuries later, when the law is written down, God will make it very clear that he is opposed to human sacrifice. He will condemn the sacrifice of children. As a matter of fact, the judgment on the Canaanites is largely because of their detestable practice of sacrificing their own children to the god Moloch. So this is not something God favors, but for some reason he allows Abraham to think, even for these few moments, allows Abraham to think that this is exactly what will be required of him. Now, a lot of theologians say Abraham believed that somehow God was going to save Isaac, and that kind of makes sense. If you have been told that Isaac is the one through whom all these descendants are going to come, then somehow in this story, God's got to save him. Some people think that uh, Abraham actually believed that God was going to raise Isaac back from the dead after all of this was over. In any event, it's a great testament to his faith that he goes through with it, and it's an even greater testament because God doesn't say, go up on that nearby hill and do this horrific thing. God says, travel to the mountains of Moriah, which is more than three days away, and I'm going to show you a place where you're going to make this sacrifice. I try to put myself in Abraham's shoes at this point. How do you make this journey for days knowing what's at the end of the journey? What a horrific experience it must have been, regardless of what you think God is going to do in the long run. To be put in this position, to deal with the agony of having been asked to take your son's life and to know it for three days and not share the information with anybody else. And, of course, it's, it's Isaac who eventually, Isaac himself, who brings up the subject. It's, uh, hey, Dad, aren't you forgetting something? You know, we can, we can see the mountain now. We've got the wood. Where's the sacrifice? Abraham says in verse 8 of chapter 22, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And here's the thing. God did, right? God, through his angel, stays Abraham's hand, says, don't, don't harm your son. 
that's not really what I want. And he provides a ram caught in the thicket, and they sacrifice that instead. Abraham had no idea how prophetic his words would become. God wanted Abraham, and through Abraham, God wants us to know his own heart, to know the agony of leading your son to a place where you know the ultimate destination is his own sacrifice. God knew that the descendants of Abraham would one day build on the mountains of Moriah a little city called Jerusalem. And that one day on one of those mountaintops, his own son would be sacrificed. God knew that he would provide the lamb. He would provide the Passover lamb who would be sacrificed on that hill. Now here's a distinction that I need for you to understand. History views sacrifice as something that humanity has done to appease angry gods. Virtually every human civilization that features the sacrifice of living things has this idea that the gods are unhappy. The gods are angry at us, and in order to appease their anger, in order to get past it, we need to offer them something. Most of these cultures believed that in offering this thing, in consuming it in the fire and destroying it, whatever fashion they do that, that somehow ownership of that thing is passed on. So if you sacrifice your children, what you're really doing is you're giving those children to this God to appease him. If you sacrifice uh, your, your calf or your goat or your sheep, you're giving God some livestock. And so when the rain didn't come, you assume that God was angry and you offer up a cow or a goat or one of your children or maybe one of your household slaves, what a privilege for them. This idea of God being angry with us survives even today in the church. We, we think in terms of doing penance. Some of you maybe, maybe showed up here this morning to do penance for the things that God's angry with you about. Amen. We think in these terms because we, we've been taught that. We've been taught that our God is an angry God. American Christianity is deeply rooted in sermons like that of Jonathan Edwards who, who taught about sinners in, a hand, in the hands of an angry God. And he used all this crazy imagery. He talked about we're, we're, like, we're like the spider at the end of a web. Somebody picks up the spider and hangs it over the fire. What's their intent? Their intent is to drop it into the fire and be done with it. And he pictures God having that relationship with us, that we're on this thin web, and at any moment the heat of the fire could burn through the web and we'll drop into the flames because we have not appeased God's anger. 
understand that Scripture views sacrifice as participation in what God is prepared to do for humanity. Funny thing about God, he doesn't need our livestock. No interest in possessing things that we have uh, to sacrifice to him. The king who entered Jerusalem enters Jerusalem prepared to sacrifice himself. This is what God's prepared to do. Centuries of animal sacrifice have done nothing to appease God's anger because that's not the point. The point is that God has already provided a solution to the problem of our sin. And through this process of sacrifice that took place over centuries, everyone is invited to participate in what it is that God himself is going to do on our behalf, what he's going to do for us. It's not about what we do for God in order to appease him. This is about what he does for humanity, and we either choose to be a part of it or not. This is participation in the ultimate act of mercy in which God himself will provide the lamb. Now you've got to remember, go back through the history of Israel and remember all the times, and there are a great many times, when God completely rejects the sacrifices of Israel. And it's not because they're not following the law. It's not because they're not doing everything the way they were told to do it. It's because they're making sacrifices to God and then turning around and treating their neighbors with cruelty. God says, you missed the whole point. There's a couple of passages where he, he says, he says your, your sacrifices reach, reach my nose like a stench, literally saying, your sacrifices stink. And Why? Why? Because you make these sacrifices to me and then you turn around and you treat others with indignity and cruelty and hatred. And you don't understand that what I've invited you to participate in is not merely a means of paying off God so that he'll be good to you. What he's invited you to participate in is his mercy. To recognize his great mercy for you. And then to turn around because of that great mercy and to share it with the people that you know. To be merciful because we have received mercy. Jesus himself is confronted during his ministry by people who were complaining about who he hung out with. They did not like the nature of the people with whom he spent his time. They were tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. In Matthew 9, verse 12, on hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, let's be clear. God mandated these sacrifices. But even in mandating them, he's saying to us, it's not the sacrifice that I desire. It's the mercy. 
sacrifices your participation in my mercy for you, and in making the sacrifice, hopefully you adopt my mercy and extend it to the rest of the world. I desire mercy. It's not the sacrifice itself that makes the ritual. It is the participation in what God is doing, in what God is going to do, and for us, what God has done. Folks, the two, the two dominant motivations for all human behavior are fear and self-interest. We don't like to think that that's true, but it is. We like to imagine that we are operating by different criteria, that we're responding to logic and reason, and, and that, that we are compassionate and careful and thoughtful. Reality, most of the time, what we are is afraid. Fear motivates us. As, as, as human beings, fear motivates us perhaps more than any other element. It's fear and self-interest. And when I say self-interest, in all honesty, I'm being kind of generous. <laughs> because self-interest doesn't sound that bad. A lot of times my, my motivation of self-interest is just flat-out selfishness. We ascribe more noble intent to our decisions, to our choices. We want to believe that we make our decisions based on more important things. But it's interesting, you know, Jesus enters Jerusalem as the Lamb of God, but uh, he's more often referred to as the Good Shepherd. Why? Well, because we're really the sheep. Scripture has this annoying habit of comparing us to livestock, and if you if you spend any time around livestock, you know it's not a flattering comparison. I have a box of chickens in my garage right now, a great big box. They're about three weeks old. Uh, you know I, I love raising chickens. And uh, I lost uh, uh, a lot last year to predators. So I've got a new box for my flock. Because of what I lost to the foxes and hawks, as my uh, Dr. Seuss tribute this morning. I love raising chickens, but chickens are stupid. Like most livestock, they're incredibly dumb. So I come out every morning, same guy. Same routine every morning, give them food and water. First thing they do, oh, run to the other side of the box. It's the hand. Then the food goes into the tray. What's the next thing they do? Suddenly, appetite overcomes fear, and they're crawling all over me. They don't care if my hand's in there. They don't care what I'm doing. They just want to eat. Folks, there's a reason that Scripture is always comparing us to livestock because we are so often either responding to what we're afraid of or we're just responding to our appetites. We were created for more. We were created to think higher. 
but so often we do not. It seems like a good recipe, though, doesn't it? I mean, I, I pursue the things that I want. And I shy away from the things that I don't want. Seems like that ought to work out pretty well. Yet, here's the reality. It never works out well. Our desires fail to satisfy us. Joy somehow slips through our fingers. The more we try to control it, the more we try to own it, the more it evades us. Our flight from, from the things that we're afraid of never seem to actually deliver us from the things that we're afraid of. And we find that instead of pursuing what's in our own interest, all we have done is become a slave to our fears and our appetites. The fear and the selfishness that drive us will never actually take us where it is that we want to go. Or as Jesus puts it in Matthew 16, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give your life Give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? In other words, Jesus invites us to live a life of selflessness and love. That's remarkable. Now, we're still caught up in this dynamic thinking that this is about fear and self-interest. If I teach you enough about the dangers of hell, you'll be afraid of hell. If I teach you enough about the joys of heaven, you'll be self-interested in heaven. And that'll be the whole motivation for coming to church and doing the whole Christian life thing. The truth is that while those things are real, what Jesus invites us to is so much greater. What Jesus invites us to is to live the life for which we were created, a life that is driven by love. And we desperately want to live a life that is driven by love. We look for it. We seek it out. We pretend that we have it. It's what we hunger for. We want to do things because we love other people. We want the people in our lives to do things for us because they love us. That's the dynamic in which we want to participate. And yet why, why do we spend so much time doing other things? Because we're afraid. We're afraid that if I just give myself up to this love that Jesus is offering, that I won't get all the things that I'm hungry for. We crave the opportunity to live a life motivated by love. And we celebrate those instances of great love and selflessness that we encounter in life. We recognize that there are times when people do things, crazy things, crazy sacrificial things purely because they love us. And what a wondrous moment that is. 
and yet we fear the life. What we have to learn this morning is that the opposite of the opposite of fear is not courage. Courage is a decision that we make. It's an important biblical principle, courage. Courage is a decision that we make to do the things that we need to do in spite of how fearful we are. But Jesus says that the opposite of fear is actually love. That love, perfect love, will cast out fear. That the two cannot coexist. That when we live for love, we stop living for fear. It's the life that you want, whether or not you've recognized that you want it or not. It's what your heart is hungry for, to live a life that is motivated by love, that sets the self aside and allows God to satisfy our appetites. Thank you.